Second Chronicles this evening, if you'll turn there with me to chapter 26 as we continue our study through Second Chronicles together. We pick up in chapter 26 this evening as we look at the next king of Judah, the life of uh, King Uzziah, who came to the throne after the uh, time of his father Amaziah, who we told at the end of chapter 25 together last time that Amaziah had turned away from following the Lord, and as the result of that, there was a conspiracy uh, that led to his assassination, and in light of that, we read in chapter 26, Uh, Verse 1, now all the people of Judah, that is after this assassination of King Amaziah, they then took Uzziah, now he's also known as Azariah, we saw in our study in 2 Kings together, he goes by that name as well, sometimes these kings that we have in the Old Testament scriptures had multiple names, so same individual we looked at back in 2 Kings chapter 14, here referred to as Uzziah, it says the people of Judah, The southern kingdom took Josiah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. So at this point now, the people, if you would, establish a replacement for their leader and their ruler. He was designated as a replacement to fulfill his father's role. And again, the reason being predominantly why he comes to the throne at just 16 years old, a rather young age. Uh, Though he has a very long reign, we're going to see his reign actually lasted five decades, one of the longest reigns we have in the Old Testament of a king in Israel. But notice he comes to the throne at the age of just 16 years old uh, because he was put into that place as a replacement for a failed leader before him. Uh, Amaziah had failed. He had turned away from the Lord. He made some mistakes that led to him being removed from his position of influence as a leader. And if you would, this is now the replacement that is put into uh, that role to take over, to bring leadership and guidance to the people. And sometimes this uh, is a part of the process, not just of natural circumstances, but sometimes this is God's divine orchestration. Sometimes uh, if an individual becomes corrupt enough in their role of leadership, or even if some spiritual leader makes poor decisions and continues to turn away from following the Lord and mistreating his people, at times God will dismiss a shepherd, God will remove a leader and install someone else in their place that God's intended to fulfill that role for the next season and this was the case with Uzziah now he now comes to the throne as the next national leader of the southern kingdom of Judah at just the age of 16 years old and we see that he did a number of wonderful things for the nation uh, during the time of his reign beginning with it tells us in verse 2 that he built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. Now, Eloth is a reference to the city of Elot. Uh, We know it more commonly as that in today's modern day and age. Uh, That's right there on the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba. So if you follow all the way down south in Israel, right where the Gulf of Aqaba is, which is that uh, area that flows out into the Red Sea, uh, down around the Egyptian border there, that's where the area of Elot was. And this was a very strategic city because of trade routes 
and being able to utilize uh, waters for the merchants coming in there. So this was a very strategic city that it seemed had been taken away by the enemies of Israel. And it says that he built or rebuilt that area and restored it to Judah. Uh, and I think this is a beautiful thing to show you the heart of this new leader that he saw that which was, uh, if you would, lost, uh, that which had been uh, taken away because of the misfortune of maybe bad decisions or the enemy attack when they were vulnerable because of times when they weren't maybe doing so well. And, and here, the heart of the leader was to restore back and to help regain old territory. Uh, and what a beautiful thing to see that this was his heart early on. One of the first acts that he did was to seek to restore back and to rebuild that which had been lost. Verse 3 tells us that Uzziah again was just 16 years old when he became king and he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. Now, again, we read some of that and it's just almost hard sometimes to envision 52 years to be a king or a national leader over a group of people. I mean, we, we have a hard enough time in America uh, accepting somebody for the duration of four years. Can you imagine 52 years, the same national leader, the same person ruling over a group of people on a national level? Uh, Uzziah was in that role reigning for 52 years and he began at the early age of just 16 and he was one of the uh, greater kings in Israel uh, or Judah I guess I should say as again this is the time of the divided nation Israel's the northern kingdom they haven't done so well they've kind of already fallen by the wayside but Judah's still holding out until the time of their deterioration which we'll see happen over these last few chapters in 2nd Chronicles time we come to the end of the book uh, the southern kingdom will fall into captivity uh, to Babylon who will conquer them but he was one of the few good and godly kings that the southern kingdom of Judah had and I think it's really awesome to see that that he took over this role and responsibility at just 16 years old amazing amazing to see what God is able to do through a 16 year old young man just reminds us again that age is no restriction to what God can do through a person's life uh, a person being young, even a teenager, a young adult, that is not a prohibiting factor in God's work. God is able to use the life of a young man, a young woman in powerful ways if their heart is in tune with his and they are inclined towards following the Lord uh, and wanting to do his work and, and to seek him in regards to what he wants. We, we see throughout the scriptures examples of this. We think back in the book of Genesis, Joseph was just a young man. He was the youngest uh, at that time of the of the brothers, just maybe 17 or so years old, when God began to put a calling upon his life and all his older brothers despised and disliked him. Uh, but yet ultimately, God's hand wasn't on any one of those older brothers. God's hand was upon Joseph at just the, the time of his teenage years, putting a calling upon his life. And of course, God took him through a process of cultivation and character development. But ultimately, he became this incredible vessel for the Lord to be used to provide salvation for the Jewish people, to rise up to the place ultimately, uh, to being second in command uh, to, to the powerful world empire of that time, the prime minister, if you would, sort of, of, of Egypt at that time. And just amazing to see how God used a young man and did incredible things through his life. 
We think as well of people like uh, Jeremiah, who Jeremiah chapter 1, remember, was struggling with the very reality that he was just a youth. As God said, look, I've called you, and he says, I've chosen you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before I even started forming you, God said, I already ordained and determined that you would be a prophet that is a spokesman for God unto the nations. And again, just a young man at the time when God's bringing this calling to fruition in his life and he's struggling with the reality of, but Lord, I sense this calling, but his biggest struggle was, but I'm young and how would people respond to that? And how would people be receptive? And how could I just, I'm intimidated because of my youthfulness and my inexperience and God encouraged him by telling him his hand was upon him and that the Lord would be with him and that his presence and would be with him to help him in what he did again another example I think of is Daniel think of the incredible things that God did through Daniel's life and when Daniel and his friends Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were taken uh, into the Babylonian empire they were probably nothing more than just teenagers at that time but it says Daniel 1 that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself as others around him were that is he determined in his heart that he was going to stand for God despite the influences and all the things that, again he was being subjected to a Babylonian education he was you know being served up if you would all the delicacies of all intoxicating drink and wine and substance and a party atmosphere he wasn't in a nice Christian bubble being homeschooled or having a nice Christian education. He was in the den of iniquity. But Daniel, as a young man, as a teenager, purposed in his heart that he was not going to defile himself despite all the avenues of opportunity and all the pressures that were around him. And God took that young man's heart and his willingness to purpose to live for God despite the pressures and temptations. And think of what we know about Daniel and what God did through his life. Again, all of these individuals, just to mention a few, young men, just young teenagers, but those whose hearts were inclined towards the Lord and God did incredible things. And here Uzziah becomes one of the good and godly kings in Israel, uh, in Judah, excuse me, and at just 16 years old when he comes to the throne, and yet he does great things for the Lord. Obviously, he has a heart for God. We begin to see that as we go on in our reading here, verse 3. It says his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he, as the other good and godly kings did, did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. So again, there's that indication of really what becomes the defining mark of whether someone is going to serve God or be self-serving or, or serve the plans of the enemy or the evil one is that they determine their decisions in regards to not what is right in the culture, what's not what's right among my peer group, what's not what's you know right in regards to, well, I feel like this is right or I feel like this is wrong according to my own determination, but what's right in the sight of the Lord. Uh, you know, I just saw a uh, interview recently that was done on a, a college campus where they were going around and just interviewing students, asking them a simple question, how many genders are there? And, and, and you should have seen some of the answers, the predominant amount of answers from these students at a you know, very reputable school for supposedly very, what would you say, smart people? 
And the answers that were coming forth, I mean, I don't know, I think it's up to 72 now, one person said. Another person said it's uh, indefinable, you know, you just, whatever you feel like you are, that ultimately quantifies what your gender is. I mean, just all, no one ever said two. I mean, just, I mean, the student after student, males, females, you know, people of all different, uh, you know, social stratus, you could tell they were interviewed, and it was just, I'm watching this going, are you kidding me? Like, this is, you know, where so many, again, and where does that stem from? That as, even as Israel, when they declined, every man doing what's right in his own eyes. It just, whatever you feel is right, whatever you determine, whatever culture is saying, and they're just, again, where do these ideas, it just comes from buying into what the culture is just selling people. Instead of determining, well, what is right in the sight of our creator who gave us breath in our lungs and created us as he did distinctly from the Garden of Eden that said God created them male and female. God did that. (laughs) That was God's design. So if God created, I, I think God has a lot more creativity than most human beings do. If God wanted to create all kinds of other options, he very well could have. God didn't do that. God created two options. God created two different distinct genders for people to have biologically. Uh, And again, here we see that this young man did well from his earliest days as others did who served God's purposes because they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Lord, what's right in your sight? That's all I care about. I may not be accepted by others. It may not always agree with my perspective on things. And sometimes truly that is where we have to come. In my sight, Lord, I may want to have it this way or see it that way, but If that's not right in your sight, then Lord, I'm blind and I'm wrong. And what you say is right and and that desire to want to submit to the authority of God. The Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker. Never to be in a good spot doing that. So this young man did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Verse five, we see kind of how that fleshed itself out practically. Look what it says. It says he sought God in the days of Zechariah. Well, that's not Zechariah the prophet. It's a different Zechariah, not the one that we know of, gave a prophetic book in the Old Testament. But he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. So notice, I love what it says at the end of verse 5, God made him to prosper. And we're going to see this a few times in this chapter and the next chapter as well with, with Jotham, how the Lord helped, how the Lord made people to prosper. And again, it just reminds me again of the nature, and we always need to remind ourselves of this sometimes, just the genuine nature of God is to be gracious to us. Uh, it is to actually to help us and to bless us. The Bible reveals God predominantly as a father jesus always continued to speak of him in that manner that you know if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will the heavenly father give good things to those who ask him and to realize that it actually is the heart of god to see us prosper to see us do well that is to experience what's good and and blessed in our lives god doesn't want to cause us to fail or make life difficult for us. And we always have to remember that in the same way, you know, I have a father of three children, others of you are parents. And I mean, what parent in a healthy relationship of love with their child wants to see their child fail? 
man, I just really hope my kids don't prosper. I mean, I hope they struggle. I hope they fail. I hope everything goes wrong. But that's not the nature of a parent, especially a, a parent wants to see their child do well, right? You want to see your child succeed, experience the best, to, to be able to experience blessing and to prosper and do well in whatever it is they're doing. Well, well that's the nature and the heart of God towards us. Uh, but what does that also then require on our end? Well, it requires that we be willing to do things God's way. Uh, and if we do things in God's way and in alignment with God's plans and purposes and the boundaries he's given to us in the word of God and the paradigm of what it means to live the way our creator intended for us in knowing him and serving him, well, to that degree, then God wants to prosper our lives. Now, he may not prosper our lives in the way we quantify prosperity, you know, maybe material success or getting rich or wealthy, not that any of those things are wrong in and of themselves either. First Timothy chapter six says that God, you know, richly supplies us with all things for our enjoyment. You know, God doesn't demonize being wealthy or rich. You know, money is not in any way, you know, good or bad. You know, money is a neutral thing. It depends on our heart towards it. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So God has no issue with blessing and prospering us, but he wants to be the one to prosper us because he's able to bless and prosper us because of the root in which we are taking and how we're living out our life. And we see in verse five, it says that he sought God and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. So this young man, he sought God, notice first of all, verse five, by seeking to learn and glean from other godly men who understood the ways of God before him. It says he sought, verse five, God in the days of Zechariah, who was a godly man that had understanding in the visions, the, the revelations of the things of God. So one of the ways that he sought God was saying, hey, here's this godly man, Zechariah, it's clear to me that this godly man who's been introduced into my life that I know has understanding in the visions, the ways, the things of God. I want to learn from him. I want to be able to glean things that I can so I can further understand the ways of God. So that was one of the ways that he sought God. And it tells us very clearly that as long as he kept seeking the Lord, that is the idea is pursuing the Lord, God made him to prosper. That is his endeavor was not predominantly to just try and go out, succeed, strive to do his best in everything. His foremost life priority was simply to be someone who sought the Lord. That was his foremost goal in life. And you know what? Honestly, folks, that is what we're created for. If you really want to know your primary purpose of existence, what your life pursuit should be, let me simplify it for you. God. That's what you should be seeking. The foremost thing all of us should be seeking in our life is just seeking God, getting to know God, getting to understand God's ways and God's heart and God's nature and doing what we can to serve God and to fulfill God's purposes. And as he's seeking the Lord and, and pursuing God, God was simply just honoring him as he was taking that path. God was saying, you're seeking me and you're seeking to know what I want and what would please me and how to serve me with your life as a person, just doing justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with me as your God. And so God made him to prosper. And God wants you and I to prosper. 
And one of the best ways to find ourselves in a place where we're experiencing progress and success and, hey, I want to go forward in life, not backward. I want to prosper. I want to get ahead. Look, don't complicate it. Just be very determined about seeking God. Seek God, seek to serve God, seek to know God, to grow in your relationship with him. And as you do that, the Lord will prosper your path, whatever that may look like in your life. But he'll bless. He's not a God of partiality. Jesus simply put it this way. Matthew 6, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, talking about earthly life experiences, food, clothing, what we need, material things. He says, they'll be added to you. That is, it's the nature of God to want to take care of us. And all he asks for us is that we would just put our top priority on seeking the Lord. So let me ask you tonight, how well are you doing in seeking God? How serious are you? Would it be said of you, hey, that is someone who spent a lot of time seeking the Lord? Would you be known as someone who sought the Lord, someone who pursued God? Sometimes I think we need to step back and, you know, kind of recalculate it a bit. Lord, help me to, to make my top pursuit you and not all the other things that I'm pursuing. Help me to get back to being serious about what it means to be someone who seeks the Lord in the practical components of what that involves. Verse 6 says, Now he went out and he made war against the Philistines, and he broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabba, and the wall of Ashdod. Again, remember, these are different Philistine cities, Philistine territories, chief areas that they occupied, kind of capital cities in the different Philistine provinces. And he built cities around Ashdod and the Philistines. So notice, he was going out and he was fighting the battles of the Lord. The Philistines were continual enemies of Israel. So he was going out and he was advancing the cause of God's people by doing what he could to break down the walls that the enemy had put up. And that's always a good thing when someone's seeking the Lord. Uh, they're going to want to do what they can to try and tear down the walls uh, that the enemy has built up and his fortresses. And, and so he's seeking to make progress. And verse 7 again says that God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians who lived in Gur Baal, and against the Meonites. So as he engaged in the battles to defeat the enemy's camp, God helped him. God assisted him. I love to read that, that statement there. God helped him. I don't know about you, but I don't want to do things in my own effort, in my own strength, I don't want to endeavor in things and try and do it in my own strength and my own ability. I would much rather know that whatever I'm doing, God is helping me in the process. I certainly don't want God hindering me, but all the more, I really want God helping me. You know, the Bible assures to us that with God, all things are possible. It also says to us that with God, nothing is impossible. Now, that's a great two-sided coin to have in your back pocket. With God, all things are possible. You flip it over. With God, nothing will be impossible. So all things are possible and nothing is impossible. What's the key? Those two words, with God. That's what shows up in both of those statements. The idea is whether we do things solo and in our own efforts and we're striving in our own self-sufficiency or whether realizing, God, I can't do anything unless you help me. But God, if you are with me and you are helping me, then I'll be able to overcome the enemy and, and take territory that the enemy perhaps has claimed and, and bring down walls that the enemy has put up. And again, whether it's defeating sin 
in our lives, the efforts of the enemy in some capacity. God wants to help us in those things. When we're fighting the Lord's battles, God wants to give us help in those things. And I love the fact that the Bible at times presents God as a helper. What an amazing thing. Because oftentimes we have this perspective that a helper is inferior, right? Well, I don't want to be a helper. I mean, a helper, that's inferior. Well, obviously it's not inferior because I'll tell you this, God's not inferior. God's not inferior at all. It's interesting. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Oh, that's so chauvinistic. What is it? God made Adam a helper, a helper comparable. What are you trying to... Well, God's a helper. There's nothing inferior or superior about being a helper. The idea is is that a helper implies partnership. And and God carries a way bigger load, and yet he's the helper. But I need it that way because I'm weak and deficient, and I don't have much to bring to the table. But with God's help, it's amazing the difference when God comes along and provides his partnership and his assistance and things. So again, whatever you're endeavoring, you endeavor to do what God wants you to do. You fight the Lord's battles, and you just trust God to help in the process. God will help. God will be there to supply the help, whatever that looks like as you walk in his paths. Verse eight says also the Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah. So again, as he began to expand the kingdom, people now began to bring tribute to him and his fame, notice, his fame or popularity spread as far as the entrance of Egypt for he became exceedingly strong. So as, as uh, Uzziah is now you know, expanding the kingdom, he's prospering, God is blessing what he's doing as a national ruler and as a leader, and now his popularity is spreading, not just among the nation, but internationally now. This is how famous of a king he's becoming. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he became exceedingly strong. Verse nine, and Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem, at the corner gate and the valley gate that is along the wall there that was built around Jerusalem and at the corner buttress of the wall and then he fortified them or he's reinforcing the infrastructure this is. Also he built towers in the desert and he dug many wells for he had much livestock both in the lowlands and in the plains and he also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains and Carmel for he loved the soil. So quite an extensive expansion. I mean, he's building up the infrastructure in the nation. He's doing what he can to help agriculture expand, uh, that the people would have a better uh, sense of of, of the crops providing for the land. It says he loved the soil. He was interested not only in important political affairs, but he was interested in the farmers. And it says he loved the soil and farming and agriculture. He was digging wells and doing things, again, just to prosper and to expand the nation, just a, a good leader trying to expand and do what was best to help the people have a better life under his leadership. Moreover, Uzziah also, verse 11, he also, notice, invested strongly in the military. It says, Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went to war by companies according to the number of their roles prepared by Jeiel, the scribe, and Masaiah, the officer, under the hand of Hanani, one of the king's captains. The total number of chief officers of the mighty men of valor was 200,600. So 2,600 who were functioning as officers and under the command of those 2,600 officers as he's now expanding the military personnel, under their authority was an army of 307,500 that made war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. 
And look at this, verse 14. He was someone who believed in military expansion. That's pretty obvious because look at verse 14 and on. It says, Then Uzziah prepared for them for the entire army shields and spears, helmets and body armor, bows and slings to cast stones. So he believed in equipping the military, taking care of those who kept the nation safe and went out and fought battles when it was necessary. He's making sure they're adequately supplied. Verse 15 says, and he made devices in Jerusalem invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. So you might say he was someone who was into, uh, you know, inventing war machines, uh, ancient versions of catapults that would launch stones and big oversized crossbows that would fire arrows out off the wall into the battlefield. So he was inventing war machines and kind of you know ancient technology advancing their military capacities. So verse 15 says, His fame spread far and wide for he was marvelously helped till, that's a key word there, circle that, till, he became strong. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. So rather sad to read, but something we have seen before, God was blessing, he was seeking the Lord, he was walking with the Lord, he was doing what was right in the sight of the Lord, God was helping him, all these wonderful things was hap were happening through his life, God was using him, but yet sadly, as he began to experience prosperity, as success began to be a part of his experience, unfortunately, he didn't manage that success too well. He didn't handle the prosperity too well, and it began to go to his head, and his heart began to be lifted up. It says here that his fame spread far and wide. He's becoming popular. People know his name now. Everybody's hearing about what's going on through Uzziah, and wow, did you, did you hear about what's happening with Uzziah and his you know, people that he's leading and so forth, and he's reading his own press clippings, and his heart is beginning to get in an unhealthy place because it says he was marvelously helped, that is, God was helping him tremendously until he became strong and his heart was lifted up to his own destruction. So again, this picture of, of how damaging it can be when someone is not able to handle success, to handle prosperity. And again, God was the one who prospered him, right? We read that. God prospered him. Prosperity or success or blessing or experiencing fruitfulness from our efforts is not wrong in and of itself. God can bring that. God wants that. The problem is, is how well we do managing success when it comes in our life or managing prosperity or advancement. Again, whether that's in victory and overcoming sin, whether that's in some form of success in our career or business or some endeavor in life or you know in spiritual works of serving the Lord or fruit from ministry, whatever that looks like, prosperity can be a really tricky thing to manage sometime for us as people. Because it can cause our hearts to begin to swell with a sense of arrogancy. And while Uzziah was humbly dependent upon the Lord, he sensed his own weakness and he realized, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a simple, weak young man. And God helped him. When he knew his own inability, when he knew his dependency that was required upon the Lord, God helped him marvelously. 
God did wonderful things and he was greatly helped and mightily used. But once he arrogantly felt that somehow he was strong enough, he was experienced enough, he knew what he was doing, somehow some of this success and prosperity must have something to do now with him. When he got to that place and he began to become strong in his own eyes and think that somehow he was strong enough on his own to be successful and to handle things from this point, he stopped relying on God's help and it became a very slippery slope real quickly in his life. And it says his heart was lifted up, speaks of his pride and his arrogancy to his own destruction. That pride and arrogance in his heart led to his personal destruction. Again, we see this all throughout the scriptures this morning, Proverbs 16. Most of us know that famous statement that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That this is always the pattern that leads to personal destruction in someone's life. Proverbs 18 says, before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. Proverbs 29, a man's pride shall bring him low. Whenever our hearts begin to become proud and we're relying on our own strength or thinking we're somehow the reason in any way, for our success or why we're doing well or why we're you know, being fruitful or, or experiencing blessing and advancement and success, whenever we think that has anything to do with us, that's a real, real quick doorway towards a slippery slope to end up flat on our face and self-destructing in our lives and the things that we're doing. Much, much better that we realize that if God is working and God is blessing and any form of success or fruit is happening, it's happening not because of us, it's actually happening in spite of us. (laughs) That God's just doing something marvelous because we're so dependent upon Him and that God is just choosing to be gracious. And God's just choosing to bless and it's all about him and he deserves all the glory. We never want to think, Romans 12 says, more highly of ourselves than we ought to. That's always a dangerous, dangerous thing. So we have to be careful. And here, Uzziah, this is what leads to his downfall at the latter part of his life. Look what happens. As his heart became lifted up to his destruction, the Bible describes, for he transgressed against the Lord his God. And how did he do it? By entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him. With him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, that is those who are prescribed by God's word to do those roles in the temple of the Lord. It says, for the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to burn incense, they say, get out of the sanctuary for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord your God. So notice, as his heart becomes lifted up in pride, he begins to think somehow because of who he is or how successful he is and how popular he is in front of the people now that somehow uh, he could pretty much just do whatever he wants. Hey, I'm the big guy now. I can, I'm entitled to do what I want. doesn't matter what anyone thinks. I don't have to ask or check. I'm, I'm the man. And so he now begins in this presumptive way to begin to push into things and to just plow forward in doing whatever he feels like doing rather than keeping himself submitted to what God's will and God's design is. He just becomes arrogant and rather brazen and he he goes rushing into at some point here the temple of the Lord to offer incense on the altar. Now, 
as a king, he had no right to be able to do that according to the standard of God's word. It did not matter whether he was the king or not. God's word very clearly said, Numbers chapter 3 and other places as well, that burning incense in the temple of the Lord and doing those responsibilities was exclusively limited to the priests, to those who are spiritually called and anointed to function in that role as priests and mediators on God's behalf. And God expressly forbid in the Old Testament that there would be someone with the function of both a king and a priest simultaneously. You could either be a king or you could be a priest, but you could not be a priest and a king or a king and a priest. God would not allow that overlap. And the reason, of course, is because there would only ultimately be one man who could be both king and priest simultaneously. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is king of kings and Lord of lords, and yet at the same time, our great high priest and the one who becomes the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So therefore, no king was to function like a priest, and no priest was allowed to function like a king. They were exclusively separated. But here this man, thinking that because he has power and prominence and popularity, he can do this because no one could tell him what to do anymore. He's in control in the big kahuna here, so he decides, I want to do this. And as he goes into the temple trying to do this, the priest says 80 of them, they stand up to him, pretty confident. And again, I love to see the fear of God more than the fear of man. Verse 18 says they withstood King Uzziah. And they said, what are you doing? You can't do this. It doesn't matter if you're the king of Israel or not. It does not matter what your name is or how popular or famous you are. You are transgressing the word of God. And I love the conviction of these godly men who stand up to King Uzziah. They're not intimidated by him at all. You know, would to God that we would have more individuals at times who put a stronger priority on God's authority and what God's word says rather than acceptance of men or, you know, the approval of others. And, and, and too often at times I think we become intimidated by people and we disregard what matters to God. And these priests were not like that. These priests' perspective was, look, we answer to a higher authority than you and you may be the king, but at the end of the day, look, we serve the king of kings. And what you're doing violates God's word. And whether you like it or not, we're going to tell you what the word of God says and we're going to stand in strong conviction and they withstand him. And, you know, even at times leaders, if they're clearly erring against the word of God and violating God's design and God's will, uh, even leaders at times need to be rebuked if that's the path they're crossing. They need individuals who are godly enough and care enough about the honor of God and the people of God and the ways of God as a whole to, to withstand them strongly. So they say, what are you doing? Get out of the sanctuary. They're kicking them out. You have no honor from the Lord. You're violating the word of God. And that was a threat of death. God warned against those who did such things. He was endangering himself. Now, verse 19 tragically says, when they rebuke him, that Uzziah became, notice, furious and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense and while he was angry with the priests leprosy broke out on his forehead the judgment of god before the priests in the house of the lord beside the incense altar so rather than be humbled and repentant and say you know what you're right i'm wrong thank you for loving me enough to tell me that I'm directly violating the word of God. 
Thank you for loving me enough to tell me that I am treading on very dangerous ground in the temple of the Lord by ignoring God's authority and doing something that is a direct transgression against the clearly written word of God and that which is God's will and being humble and receptive would have been a much more wonderful response. But instead, and this is an indication how you can tell when someone's heart is truly arrogant, when people speak the truth to them and people try and reprove or correct them, they become furious. They become angry. Who are you to tell me? If you're going to try and challenge me, get out of here. I'm done with you. And, and, and this is kind of the thing here. Rather than be receptive, they become you know, a, a source of irritation. It says he was furious, angry, and yet as he's angry, God ultimately brings judgment upon him. It says leprosy broke out on his forehead. And of course, leprosy is always a, a type and a symbolic picture of, of sin in the Bible because it's an incurable disease and it causes isolation and the deterioration of a person's senses where they lose sensation. And when a person enters into sin, they lose further and further sensation. Their conscience becomes dull and they become unsensitive to what's right and wrong. They begin to truly lose their mind and their heart becomes hard. And Azariah verse uh, 20 says the chief priests and all the priests looked at him there on his forehead and he was leprous so they thrust him out of the place indeed he also hurried to get out because the lord had struck him and king uzziah was a leper until the day of his death and he dwelt in an isolated house that is all alone because he was a leper for he was cut off from the house of the lord then jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first and last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, wrote, So Uzziah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the field of burial, which belonged to the kings, for they said, He is a leper. And then Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Notice, because of his acts... It says he's not only struck with leprosy, that is, God brings a strong disciplinary action against him to try and reprove him of his error and humble him for his arrogancy in God's authority. But it says there, verse 21, that he was a leper until the day of his death and he lived in an isolated house cut off from the rest of the people. They would isolate and quarantine those who had leprosy because they were concerned and knew it was an incurable disease. So people were isolated and cut off from fellowship with others and kept from the house of God altogether. Now, what's interesting is this. Remember, Miriam in the Old Testament challenged the authority of the Lord and she was struck with leprosy, but when her heart was humbled and Moses prayed for her, God healed her and took it away because God honored the repentance, it seems, and the humility after being disciplined by the Lord. Apparently, Uzziah's heart remained unrepentant. He stood stubborn and arrogant, and so God allowed the effects of his stubborn, arrogant heart to bring further deterioration into his life. And part of that was he ended up being isolated and cut off from the things of God, from the people of God, and it says he remained a leper, sadly, until the day of his death. Well, Jotham comes to the throne after him, and let's just look briefly. Chapter 27 is short and not much to say about Jotham at Jotham's reign. It says Jotham was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. So nowhere near as long as his father's reign, but again, coming to the throne in his early 20s. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. He also did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. 
although he did not enter the temple of the Lord. Very interesting. The Holy Spirit wants us to know he also, being a good and godly king in the nation of Israel, uh, did what was right in the sight of the Lord as well, like his father. So he learned, no doubt again, keep in mind, Uzziah ended bad, but he lived quite godly. But like many, he lived godly, but in his latter years, he just didn't finish very well. And it's sad we see this kind of you know, repeated warning, it almost seems, this epitaph of so many. Have we seen now not start well? And they do really well, but they don't finish well. They don't cross the finish line well. They get sloppy with their spiritual lives at the end. They get stubborn and proud and arrogant. Or, and, and here it says that he did what was right. He, he took a lot of what his godly father taught him, but he also very wisely, verse 2 says, although he did not enter the temple of the Lord. That is, he also learned from the mistake of his father and he didn't repeat it. He recognized, okay, I've learned these good things from my father, but I've also learned from his failure that I don't want to repeat the same patterns. I don't want to make the same mistakes. And you know what? I'll tell you something, folks. It is great wisdom to learn both from the you know, success and the godly example from others, and it also great wisdom to learn in regards to failure that we see in other people's lives, how to sometimes take the correspondence course rather than have to participate yourself in the lab work. Sometimes it's great wisdom to say, you know what, I saw what they did and led to their failure. I don't want to repeat those same patterns. I don't want to do those same things. And, you know, for some of us, that may even be in regards to our own parents. It may be things that we observe from our own parents' lives that we say, you know, okay, certain things I gleaned that were good and there are other things. I don't want to make some of those same mistakes. I want to do things differently in my life. I want to follow the Lord in a different way and handle my affairs differently. So he did not enter the temple. But notice, though he did what was good as a leader, it says, verse 2, still the people acted corruptly. Now take notice, that indicates, again, the, the free will of humanity. Here he was a good king. Here he did what was godly and right in the sight of the Lord. But still the people's hearts acted corruptly because at this time the nation is deteriorating morally. And it will continue to decline all the way to the time of the Babylonian conquering of Jerusalem. But again, you can have great leadership, but that's no guarantee that the people are going to cooperate and follow great leadership. People still have a free will. The people still acted corruptly despite having a good leader. Verse 3, he also built the upper gate of the house of the Lord and extensively built, it says, on the wall of Ophel. And he built cities in the mountains of Judah and the forest. He built fortresses and towers. So like his father, he spent a lot of effort into expanding and strengthening the infrastructure of the nation. He also, verse 5, fought with the king of the Ammonites and defeated them. And the people of Ammon gave him that year a hundred talents of silver, 10,000 cores of wheat and 10,000 of barley. And the people of Ammon paid this to him in the second and third years also. So Jotham, verse 6, became mighty because he prepared his ways before the Lord his God. And quite a quick ending. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all his wars and ways, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. He was 25 years old. We're told once again when he became king, he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, that is Jerusalem. And then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place and and we'll strategically see as we've talked about before here's this very godly man jotham and then ahaz this guy's going to be a mess 
He's going to be a nightmare just to go to show you. You can have a good and a godly father, but it's no guarantee that the kids are going to walk in the ways of the Lord. That may be discouraging, but that's reality. That's reality. They have to have their own encounter with God, their own experience with the Lord. And we'll see that in Ahaz next week. But Jotham, if I can draw your attention just to verse six before we close, it says he became mighty. Why? Because he prepared his ways before the Lord, his God. You know, this is one of the key verses that we should take note of in the book of Second Chronicles as we study all these different kings and learn life lessons. There were only about, I believe it's like nine or so good and godly kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. And of all those good and godly kings in Judah, eight of the nine all did really well, but then they all had some, uh, you know, failure at some point in their life. They all made some mistake in the latter days, like Uzziah that we just saw in the Bible very transparently shows their weakness or their failure or their grievous error of turning away from the Lord after a great season of serving the Lord. The only person we have of all the kings who the Bible says nothing negative about, and I'm not saying that he was a perfect man, but the only person of all the good kings in Judah that the Holy Spirit tells us nothing negative about is Jotham. This very short reign, this very short little epitaph of his life, but there's nothing of us that's told negative about him. All we are told about him is that he became mighty, as he became very powerful and strong in his influence because he prepared his ways before the Lord is God. You know, Jotham to me is just the picture of this individual who's, you know, kind of just this type of man who flies under the radar. Unlike his father who reigned for 52 years and his fame spread far and wide to Egypt and he probably had his own YouTube channel with 8 million subscribers and, you know, a multi-broadcasting network. Jotham is just, Jotham? Who's Jotham? You know, when have you ever seen a Bible movie made about Jotham? Right, we have Bible movies about David and Goliath and who's Jotham? Most people don't even know Jotham exists. But Jotham was someone who nothing negative is said about him, no major faults. It says that he was a man who became very mighty and influential and powerful because he was someone who just prepared and ordered his ways before the Lord. That is, before he took any path or any way, he wanted to know, Lord, is this your way? Lord, is this your way? Because if it's your way, I'm interested. Lord, if it's you're not your way, I don't want anything to do with it. And he was just someone in kind of, if I could say this, humble obscurity that seemed to be someone so far off the radar, but in the small sphere of whatever he did in his short reign, Jotham was very powerful and influential from God's perspective. And you know what? Most of us are not going to be individuals with fame spread far and wide and everybody knowing about us and all this great success and nationally and internationally. But you know what? Every one of us has the opportunity like Jotham in our little sphere of influence to be someone who can be mighty for the Lord, strong in our influence for God in how he would use us. And you know what? It's not complicated. Just prepare your ways before the Lord. Take all of your ways before the Lord and say, Lord, before I go this way, I want to know if it's your way. And, and Lord, I, I want to bring this before you in prayer. And Lord, what does your word say about this? Apparently, he was a man who sought God and took God's guidance, and, and that just caused him to be a very mighty influence for the Lord. And all of us can do that. 
You know what? Get up in the morning. Read your Bible. Pray. When you make decisions, don't just make decisions that seem like good decisions. Seek the Lord. Ask God for His confirmation and for His clarity and let the Lord direct your ways and you can be mightily used of God. Mightily used of God. Each and every one of us. Let's stand together. Let's pray.